Chapter 13 The ship dropped quietly to land on the edge of the wide clearing, a hundred yards or so from the village. It arrived suddenly and unexpectedly, but with a minimum of fuss. One moment, it was a perfectly ordinary late afternoon in the early autumn, the leaves were just beginning to turn red and gold, the river was beginning to swell again with the rains from the mountains in the north, the plumage of the picker birds was beginning to thicken in anticipation of the coming winter frosts, any day now the perfectly normal beasts would start their thunderous migration across the plains, and old Thrashbarg was beginning to mutter to himself as he hobbled his way around the village, a muttering which meant that he was rehearsing and elaborating the stories that he would tell of the past year once the evenings had drawn in and people had no choice but to gather round the fire and listen to him and grumble and say that that wasn't how they remembered it, and the next moment there was a spaceship sitting there, gleaming in the warm autumn sun. It hummed for a bit and then stopped. It wasn't a big spaceship. If the villagers had been experts on spaceships, they would have known at once that it was a pretty nifty one, a small, sleek, Harundi four-berth runabout, with just about every optional extra in the brochure, except advanced Vectoid's stabilisis, which only wimps went for. You can't get a good, tight, sharp curve round a trilateral time axis with advanced Vectoid's stabilisis. All right, it's a bit safer, but it makes the handling go all soggy. The villagers didn't know all that, of course. Most of them, here on the remote planet of Lamwella, had never seen a spaceship, certainly not one that was all in one piece, and as it shone warmly in the evening light, it was just the most extraordinary thing they had come across, since the day Kerp caught a fish with a head at both ends. Everybody had fallen silent. Whereas a moment before, two or three dozen people had been wandering about, chattering, chopping wood, carrying water teasing the picker birds or just amiably trying to stay out of old Thrashbarg's way, suddenly all activity died away and everybody turned to look at the strange object in amazement. Or not quite everybody. The picker birds tended to be amazed by completely different things. A perfectly ordinary leaf lying unexpectedly on a stone would cause them to skitter off in paroxysms of confusion. Sunrise took them completely by surprise every morning, but the arrival of an alien craft from another world simply failed to engage any part of their attention. They continued to car and writ and huck as they pecked for seeds on the ground. The river continued with its quiet, spacious burbling. Also, the noise of loud and tuneless singing from the last hut on the left continued unabated. Suddenly, with a slight click and a hum, a door folded itself outwards and downwards from the spaceship, then, for a minute or two, nothing further seemed to happen other than the loud singing from the last hut on the left, and the thing just sat there. Some of the villagers, particularly the boys, began to edge forward a little bit to have a closer look. Old Thrashbarg tried to shoo them back. This was exactly the sort of thing that Old Thrashbarg didn't like to have happening. He hadn't foretold it, not even slightly, and even though he would be able to wrestle the whole thing into his continuing story somehow or other, it really was all getting a bit much to deal with. He strode forward, pushed the boys back, and raised his arms and his ancient knobbly staff into the air. The long, warm light of the evening sun caught him nicely. He prepared to welcome whatever gods these were as if he had been expecting them all along. Still, nothing happened. 
Gradually it became clear that there was some kind of argument going on inside the craft. Time went by and old Thrashbarg's arms were beginning to ache. Suddenly the ramp folded itself back up again. That made it easy for Thrashbarg. They were demons and he had repulsed them. The reason he hadn't foretold it was that prudence and modesty forbade. Almost immediately a different ramp folded itself out on the other side of the craft from where Thrushbarg was standing, and two figures at last emerged on it, still arguing with each other and ignoring everybody, even Thrushbarg, whom they wouldn't even have noticed from where they were standing. Old Thrushbarg chewed angrily on his beard. To continue to stand there with his arms upraised? To kneel with his head bowed forward and his staff held out, pointing at them? To fall backwards as if overcome in some titanic inner struggle? Perhaps just to go off to the woods and live in a tree for a year without speaking to anyone? He opted just to drop his arms smartly as if he had done what he meant to do. They were really hurting, so he didn't have much choice. He made a small, secret sign he had just invented towards the ramp which had closed and then made three and a half steps backwards so he could at least get a good look at whoever these people were and then decide what to do next. The taller one was a very good-looking woman wearing soft and crumply clothes. Old Thrashbarg didn't know this, but they were made of Rimplon TM, a new synthetic fabric which was terrific for space travel because it looked its absolute best when it was all creased and sweaty. The shorter one was a girl. She was awkward and sullen-looking, and was wearing clothes which looked their absolute worst when they were all creased and sweaty. And what was more, she almost certainly knew it. All eyes watched them, except for the picker birds, which had their own things to watch. The woman stood and looked around her. She had a purposeful air about her. There was obviously something in particular she wanted, but she didn't know exactly where to find it. She glanced from face to face among the villagers assembled curiously around her, without apparently seeing what she was looking for. Thrashbarg had no idea how to play this at all, and decided to resort to chanting. He threw back his head and began to wail, but was instantly interrupted by a fresh outbreak of song from the hut of the sandwich maker, the last one on the left. The woman looked round sharply, and gradually a smile came over her face. Without so much as a glance at old Thrashbarg, she started to walk towards the hut. There is an art to the business of making sandwiches, which it is given to few ever to find the time to explore in depth. It is a simple task, but the opportunities for satisfaction are many and profound. Choosing the right bread, for instance. The sandwich maker had spent many months in daily consultation and experiment with Grap the baker, and eventually they had between them created a loaf of exactly the consistency that was dense enough to slice thinly and neatly while still being light, moist and having that fine nutty flavour which best enhanced the savour of roast perfectly normal beast flesh. There was also the geometry of the slice to be refined, the precise relationships between the width and height of the slice and also its thickness which would give the proper sense of bulk and weight to the finished sandwich. Here again, lightness was a virtue, but so too were firmness, generosity, and that promise of succulence and savour that is the hallmark of a truly intense sandwich experience. The proper tools, of course, were crucial, and many were the days that the sandwich maker, when not engaged with the baker at his oven, would spend with Strinder the toolmaker, weighing and balancing knives,
taking them to the forge and back again. Suppleness, strength, keenness of edge, length and balance were all enthusiastically debated. Theories put forward, tested, refined, and many was the evening when the sandwich maker and the tool maker could be seen silhouetted against the light of the setting sun and the toolmaker's forge making slow, sweeping movements through the air, trying one knife after another, comparing the weight of this one with the balance of another, the suppleness of a third, and the handle binding of a fourth. Three knives altogether were required. First, there was the knife for the slicing of the bread, a firm, authoritative blade which imposed a clear and defining will on a loaf. Then there was the butter-spreading knife, which was a whippy little number but still with a firm backbone to it. Early versions had been a little too whippy, but now the combination of flexibility with a core of strength was exactly right to achieve the maximum smoothness and grace of spread. The chief amongst the knives, of course, was the carving knife. This was the knife that would not merely impose its will on the medium through which it moved, as did the bread knife, it must work with it be guided by the grain of the meat to achieve slices of the most exquisite consistency and translucency that would slide away in filmy folds from the main hunk of meat. The sandwich maker would then flip each sheet with a smooth flick of the wrist onto the beautifully proportioned lower bread slice, trim it with four deft strokes, and then at last perform the magic that the children of the village so longed to gather round and watch with rapt attention and wonder. With just four more dexterous flips of the knife, he would assemble the trimmings into a perfectly fitting jigsaw of pieces on top of the primary slice. For every sandwich, the size and shape of the trimmings were different, but the sandwich maker would always effortlessly and without hesitation assemble them into a pattern which fitted perfectly. A second layer of meat and a second layer of trimmings, and the main act of creation would be accomplished. The sandwich maker would pass what he had made to his assistant, who would then add a few slices of newcumber and fladdish, and a touch of splagbury sauce, and then apply the topmost layer of bread and cut the sandwich with a fourth and altogether plainer knife. It was not that these were not also skilful operations, but they were lesser skills to be performed by a dedicated apprentice who would one day, when the sandwich maker finally laid down his tools, take over from him. It was an exalted position and that apprentice, Drimple, was the envy of his fellows. There were those in the village who were happy chopping wood, those who were content carrying water, but to be the sandwich maker was very heaven. And so the sandwich maker sang as he worked. He was using the last of the year's salted meat. It was a little past its best now, but still the rich savour of perfectly normal beast meat was something unsurpassed in any of the sandwich maker's previous experience. Next week, it was anticipated that the perfectly normal beasts would appear again for their regular migration, whereupon the whole village would once again be plunged into frenetic action, hunting the beasts, killing perhaps six, maybe even seven dozen of the thousands that thundered past. Then the beasts must be rapidly butchered and cleaned, with most of the meat salted to keep it through the winter months until the return migration in the spring, which would replenish their supplies. The very best of the meat would be roasted straight away for the feast that marked the autumn passage. The celebrations would last for three days of sheer exuberance, 
dancing, and stories that old Thrashbarg would tell of how the hunt had gone. Stories that he would have been busy sitting making up in his hut while the rest of the village was out doing the actual hunting. And then the very, very best of the meat would be saved from the feast and delivered cold to the sandwich maker. And the sandwich maker would exercise on it the skills that he had brought to them from the gods and make the exquisite sandwiches of the third season, of which the whole village would partake before beginning the next day to prepare themselves for the rigours of the coming winter. Today he was just making ordinary sandwiches, if such delicacies so lovingly crafted could ever be called ordinary. Today his assistant was away, so the sandwich maker was applying his own garnish, which he was happy to do. He was happy with just about everything, in fact. He sliced, he sang. He flipped each slice of meat neatly onto a slice of bread, trimmed it, and assembled all the trimmings into their jigsaw. A little salad, a little sauce, another slice of bread, another sandwich, another verse of Yellow Submarine. Hello, Arthur. The sandwich maker almost sliced his thumb off. The villagers had watched in consternation as the woman had marched boldly to the hut of the sandwich maker. The sandwich maker had been sent to them by Almighty Bob in a burning fiery chariot. This, at least, was what Thrashbarg said, and Thrashbarg was the authority on these things. So, at least, Thrashbarg claimed, and Thrashbarg was... and so on and so on. It was hardly worth arguing about. A few villagers wondered why Almighty Bob would send his only begotten sandwich maker in a burning fiery chariot rather than perhaps in one that might have landed quietly without destroying half the forest, filling it with ghosts and also injuring the sandwich maker quite badly. Old Thrashbarg said that it was the ineffable will of Bob and when they asked him what ineffable meant he said look it up. This was a problem because Old Thrashbarg had the only dictionary and he wouldn't let them borrow it. They asked him why not, and he said that it was not for them to know the will of Almighty Bob, and when they asked him why not again, he said because he said so. Anyway, somebody sneaked into old Thrashbarg's hut one day while he was out having a swim, and looked up ineffable. Ineffable apparently meant unknowable, indescribable, unutterable, not to be known or spoken about. So that cleared that up. At least they had got the sandwiches. One day, old Thrashbarg said that Almighty Bob had decreed that he... Thrashbarg was to have first pick of the sandwiches. The villagers asked him when this had happened exactly, and Thrashbarg said it had happened yesterday, when they weren't looking. Have faith, old Thrashbarg said, or burn. They let him have first pick of the sandwiches. It seemed easiest. And now this woman had just arrived out of nowhere and gone straight for the sandwich maker's hut. His fame had obviously spread, though it was hard to know where to, since, according to old Thrashbarg, there wasn't anywhere else. Anyway, wherever it was she had come from, presumably somewhere ineffable, she was here now, and was in the sandwich maker's hut. Who was she? And who was the strange girl who was hanging around outside the hut, moodily and kicking at stones and showing every sign of not wanting to be there? It seemed odd that someone should come all the way from somewhere ineffable in a chariot that was obviously a vast improvement on the burning fiery one which had brought them the sandwich maker, if she didn't even want to be here. They all looked to Thrashbarg, but he was on his knees mumbling and looking very firmly up into the sky and not catching anybody else's eye until he'd thought of something. Trillion, 
said the sandwich maker, sucking his bleeding thumb. What? Who? When? Where? Exactly the questions I was going to ask you, said Trillian, looking around Arthur's hut. It was neatly laid out with his kitchen utensils. There were some fairly basic cupboards and shelves and a basic bed in the corner. A door at the back of the room led to something Trillian couldn't see because the door was closed. Nice, she said, but in an inquiring tone of voice. She couldn't quite make out what the setup was. Very nice, said Arthur. Wonderfully nice. I don't know when I've ever been anywhere nicer. I'm happy here. They like me. I make sandwiches for them. And, um, well, that's it, really. They like me and I make sandwiches for them. Sounds, uh, idyllic said Arthur, firmly. It is. It really is. I don't expect you'd like it very much, but for me, it's... well, it's perfect. Look, sit down, please. Make yourself comfortable. Can I get you anything? Uh, a sandwich? Trillian picked up a sandwich and looked at it. She sniffed it carefully. Try it, said Arthur. It's good. Trillian took a nibble, then a bite, and munched on it thoughtfully. Hmm, it is good, she said looking at it. My life's work, said Arthur, trying to sound proud and hoping he didn't sound like a complete idiot. He was used to being revered a bit and was having to go through some unexpected mental gear changes. What's the meat in it? asked Trillian. Ah, yes, that's, um, that's perfectly normal beast. It's what? Perfectly normal beast. It's a bit like a cow, or rather a bull, kind of like a buffalo, in fact. Large... Charging sort of animal. So, what's odd about it? Nothing, it's perfectly normal. I see. It's just a bit odd where it comes from. Trillian frowned and stopped chewing. Where does it come from, she asked with her mouthful. She wasn't going to swallow until she knew. Well, it's not just a matter of where it comes from, it's also where it goes to. It's all right, it's perfectly safe to swallow. I've eaten tons of it, it's great. Very succulent, very tender. Slightly sweet flavour with a long, dark finish. Trillian still hadn't swallowed. Where, she said, does it come from and where does it go to? They come from a point just slightly to the east of the Hondo Mountains. They're the big ones behind us here. You must have seen them as you came in. And then they sweep in their thousands across the great Anhondo Plains and... Uh, well, that's it, really. That's where they come from. That's where they go. Trillian frowned. There was something she wasn't quite getting about this. I probably haven't made it quite clear, said Arthur. When I say they come from a point to the east of the Hondo Mountains, I mean that that's where they suddenly appear. Then they sweep across the Anhondo Plains and, well, vanish, really. We have about six days to catch as many of them as we can before they disappear. In the spring, they do it again, only the other way round, you see. Reluctantly, Trillian swallowed. It was either that or spit it out. And it did, in fact, taste pretty good. I see, she said, once she had reassured herself that she didn't seem to be suffering any ill effects. And why are they called perfectly normal beasts? Well, I think because otherwise people might think it was a bit odd. I think old Thrashbarg called them that. He says that they come from where they come from and they go to where they go to and that it's Bob's will and that's all there is to it. Who just don't even ask? Well, you look well on it. I feel well. 
You look well. I'm well. I'm very well. Well, that's good. Yes. Good. Good. Nice of you to drop in. Thanks. Well, said Arthur, casting around himself. Astounding how hard it was to think of anything to say to someone after all this time. I expect you're wondering how I found you, said Trillian. Yes, said Arthur. I was wondering exactly that. How did you find me? Well, as you may or may not know, I now work for one of the big sub-ether broadcasting networks that... I did know that, said Arthur, suddenly remembering. Yes, you've done very well. That's terrific. Very exciting. Well done. Must be a lot of fun. Exhausting. All that rushing around, I expect it must be, yes. We have access to virtually every kind of information. I found your name on the passenger list of the ship that crashed. Arthur was astonished. You mean they knew about the crash? Well, of course they knew. You don't have a whole space liner disappear without someone knowing about it. But you mean they knew where it had happened? They knew I'd survived? Yes. But nobody's ever been to look or search or rescue. There's been absolutely nothing. Well, there wouldn't be. It's a whole complicated insurance thing. They just bury the whole thing, pretend it never happened. The insurance business is completely screwy now. You know they've reintroduced the death penalty for insurance company directors. Really? said Arthur. No, I didn't. For what offence? Trillian frowned. What do you mean, offence? I see. Trillian gave Arthur a long look and then, in a new tone of voice, said, "'It's time for you to take responsibility, Arthur.' Arthur tried to understand this remark. He found it often took a moment or so before he saw exactly what it was that people were driving at, so he let a moment or two pass at a leisurely rate. Life was so pleasant and relaxed these days, there was time to let things sink in. He let it sink in. He still didn't quite understand what she meant, though, so in the end he had to say so. Trillian gave him a cool smile and then turned back to the door of the hut. Random, she called. Come in. Come and meet your father. Chapter 14 As the guide folded itself back into a smooth, dark disc, Ford realised some pretty hectic stuff. Or at least, he tried to realise it, but it was too hectic to take in all in one go. His head was hammering, his ankle was hurting, and though he didn't like to be a wimp about his ankle, he always found that intense multidimensional logic was something he understood best in the bath. He needed time to think about this. Time, a tall drink, and some kind of rich, foamy oil. He had to get out of here. He had to get the guide out of here. He didn't think they'd make it together. He glanced wildly round the room. Think, think, think. It had to be something simple and obvious. If he was right in his nasty, lurking suspicion that he was dealing with nasty, lurking Vogons, then the more simple and obvious, the better. Suddenly, he saw what he needed. He wouldn't try to beat the system. He would just use it. The frightening thing about the Vogons was their absolute mindless determination to do whatever mindless thing it was they were determined to do, there was never any point in trying to appeal to their reason because they didn't have any. However, if you kept your nerve, you could sometimes exploit their blinkered, bludgeoning insistence on being bludgeoning and blinkered. It wasn't merely that their left hand didn't always know what their right hand was doing, so to speak. Quite often, their right hand had a pretty hazy notion as well. 
Did he dare just post the thing to himself? Did he dare just put it in the system and let the Vogons work out how to get the thing to him while at the same time they were busy, as they probably would be, tearing the building apart to find out where he'd hidden it? Yes. Feverishly, he packed it. He wrapped it. He labelled it. With a moment's pause to wonder if he was really doing the right thing, he committed the package to the building's internal mail chute. Colin, he said, turning to the little hovering ball. I'm going to abandon you to your fate. I'm so happy, said Colin. Make the most of it, said Ford, because what I want you to do is to nurse made that package out of the building. They'll probably incinerate you when they find you and I won't be here to help. It will be very, very nasty for you and that's just too bad. Got it? I gurgle with pleasure, said Colin. Go, said Ford. Colin obediently dived down the mail chute in pursuit of his charge. Now Ford had only himself to worry about, but that was still quite a substantial worry. There were noises of heavy running footsteps outside the door which he had taken the precaution of locking and shifting a large filing cabinet in front of. He was worried that everything had gone so smoothly. Everything had fitted terribly well. He had hurtled through the day with reckless abandon and yet everything had worked out with uncanny neatness. Except for his shoe. He was bitter about his shoe. That was an account that was going to have to be settled. With a deafening roar, the door exploded inwards. In the turmoil of smoke and dust, he could see large, slug-like creatures hurrying through. So everything was going well, was it? Everything was working out as if the most extraordinary luck was on his side. Well, he'd see about that. In a spirit of scientific inquiry, he hurled himself out of the window again. Chapter 15 The first month, getting to know each other, was a little difficult. The second month, trying to come to terms with what they'd got to know about each other in the first month, was much easier. The third month, when the box arrived, was very tricky indeed. At the beginning, it was a problem even trying to explain what a month was. This had been a pleasantly simple matter for Arthur here on Lamwella. The days were just a little over 25 hours long which basically meant an extra hour in bed every single day, and, of course, having regularly to reset his watch, which Arthur rather enjoyed doing. He also felt at home with the number of suns and moons which Lamwella had, one of each, as opposed to some of the planets he'd fetched up on from time to time which had had ridiculous numbers of them. The planet orbited its single sun every 300 days, which was a good number because it meant the year didn't drag by. The moon orbited Lamwella just over nine times a year, which meant that a month was a little over 30 days, which was absolutely perfect because it gave you a little more time to get things done in. It was not merely reassuringly like Earth. It was actually rather an improvement. Random, on the other hand, thought she was trapped in a recurring nightmare. She would have crying fits and think the moon was out to get her. Every night it was there, and then, when it went, the sun came out and followed her, over and over again. Trillian had warned Arthur that Random might have some difficulty in adjusting to a more regular lifestyle than she had been used to up till now, but Arthur hadn't been ready for actual howling at the moon. He hadn't been ready for any of this, of course. His daughter. His daughter. He and Trillian had never even... had they? He was absolutely convinced he would have remembered. What about Zaphod? Not the same species, Arthur, Trillian had answered. 
When I decided I wanted a child, they ran all sorts of genetic tests on me and could find only one match anywhere. It was only later that it dawned on me. I double-checked, and I was right. They don't usually like to tell you, but I insisted. You mean you went to a DNA bank? Arthur had asked, pop-eyed. Yes, but she wasn't quite as random as her name suggests, because, of course, you were the only Homo sapiens donor. I must say, though, it seems you were quite a frequent flyer. Arthur had stared wide-eyed at the unhappy-looking girl who was slouching awkwardly in the doorframe looking at him. But when... How long... You mean, what age is she? Yes. The wrong one. What do you mean? I mean that I haven't any idea. What? Well, in my timeline, I think it's about ten years since I had her, but she's obviously quite a lot older than that. I spend my life going backwards and forwards in time, you see. The job. I used to take her with me when I could, but it just wasn't always possible. Then I used to put her into daycare time zones, but you just can't get reliable time tracking now. You leave them there in the morning, you've simply no idea how old they'll be in the evening. You complain till you're blue in the face, but it doesn't get you anywhere. I left her at one of the places for a few hours once, and when I came back she'd passed puberty. I've done all I can, Arthur. It's over to you. I've got a water cover. The ten seconds that passed after Trillian left were about the longest of Arthur Dent's life. Time, we know, is relative. You can travel light years through the stars and back, and if you do it at the speed of light, then, when you return, you may have aged mere seconds while your twin brother or sister will have aged twenty, thirty, forty, or however many years it is, depending on how far you travelled. This will come to you as a profound personal shock, particularly if you didn't know you had a twin brother or sister. The seconds that you have been absent for will not have been sufficient time to prepare you for the shock of new and strangely distended family relationships when you return. Ten seconds' silence was not enough time for Arthur to reassemble his whole view of himself and his life in a way that suddenly included an entire new daughter of whose merest existence he had had not the slightest inkling of a suspicion when he had woken that morning. Deep, emotional family ties cannot be constructed in ten seconds, however far and fast you travel away from them, and Arthur could only feel helpless, bewildered and numb as he looked at the girl standing in his doorway, staring at his floor. He supposed that there was no point in pretending not to be hopeless. He walked over and he hugged her. I don't love you, he said. I'm sorry, I don't even know you yet, but give me a few minutes. We live in strange times. We also live in strange places, each in a universe of our own. The people with whom we populate our universes are the shadows of whole other universes intersecting with our own. Being able to glance out into this bewildering complexity of infinite recursion and say things like, Oh, hi, Ed. Nice tan. How's Carol? involves a great deal of filtering skill for which all conscious entities have eventually to develop a capacity in order to protect themselves from the contemplation of the chaos through which they seethe and tumble. So give your kid a break, OK? Extract from Practical Parenting in a Fractally Demented Universe What's this? Arthur had almost given up. That is to say, he was not going to give up. He was absolutely not going to give up. Not now, not ever. 
but if he had been the sort of person who was going to give up, this was probably the time he would have done it. Not content with being surly, bad-tempered, wanting to go and play in the Paleozoic era, not seeing why they had to have the gravity on the whole time and shouting at the sun to stop following her, Random had also used his carving knife to dig up stones to throw at the picker birds for looking at her like that. Arthur didn't even know if Lamwella had had a Paleozoic era. According to old Thrashbarg, the planet had been found, fully formed, in the navel of a giant earwig at 4.30 one rune day afternoon, and although Arthur, as a seasoned galactic traveller with good O-level passes in physics and geography, had fairly serious doubts about this, it was rather a waste of time trying to argue with old Thrashbarg, and there had never been much point before. He sighed as he sat nursing the chipped and bent knife. He was going to love her if it killed him or her, or both. It wasn't easy being a father. He knew that no one had ever said it was going to be easy, but that wasn't the point, because he'd never asked about being one in the first place. He was doing his best. Every moment that he could rest away from making sandwiches, he was spending with her, talking to her, walking with her, sitting on the hill with her, watching the sun go down over the valley in which the village nestled, trying to find out about her life, trying to explain to her about his... It was a tricky business. The common ground between them, apart from the fact that they had almost identical genes, was about the size of a pebble. Or rather, it was about the size of Trillian, and of her they had slightly differing views. What's this? He suddenly realised she had been talking to him and he hadn't noticed. Or rather, he had not recognised her voice. Instead of the usual tone of voice in which she spoke to him, which was bitter and truculent... She was just asking him a simple question. He looked round in surprise. She was sitting there on a stool in the corner of the hut in that rather hunched way she had, knees together, feet splayed out, with her dark hair hanging down over her face as she looked at something she had cradled in her hands. Arthur went over to her, a little nervously. Her mood swings were very unpredictable, but so far they'd all been between different types of bad ones, Outbreaks of bitter recrimination would give way without warning to abject self-pity and then long bouts of sullen despair, which were punctuated with sudden acts of mindless violence against inanimate objects and demands to go to electric clubs. Not only were there no electric clubs on Lamwella, there were no clubs at all, and, in fact, no electricity. There was a forge and a bakery, a few carts and a well but those were the high watermark of Lamwellan technology, and a fair number of Random's unquenchable rages were directed against the sheer incomprehensible backwardness of the place. She could pick up Sub-Ether TV on a small flexor panel which had been surgically implanted in her wrist, but that didn't cheer her up at all, because it was full of news of insanely exciting things happening in every other part of the galaxy than here. It would also give her frequent news of her mother, who had dumped her to go off and cover some war which now seemed not to have happened, or at least to have gone all wrong in some way because of the absence of any proper intelligence gathering. It also gave her access to lots of great adventure shows, featuring all sorts of fantastically expensive spaceships crashing into each other. The villagers were absolutely hypnotised by all these wonderful magic images flashing over her wrist. They had only ever seen one spaceship crash, and it had been so frightening, violent and shocking, and had caused so much horrible devastation, fire and death, that, stupidly, they had never realised it was entertainment. Old Thrashbarg had been so astonished by it 
that he had instantly seen Random as an emissary from Bob, but had fairly soon afterwards decided that in fact she had been sent as a test of his faith, if not of his patience. He was also alarmed at the number of spaceship crashes he had to start incorporating into his holy stories if he was to hold the attention of the villagers and not have them rushing off to peer at Random's wrist all the time. At the moment she was not peering at her wrist. Her wrist was turned off. Arthur squatted down quietly beside her to see what she was looking at. It was his watch. He had taken it off when he'd gone to shower under the local waterfall, and Random had found it and was trying to work it out. It's just a watch, he said. It's to tell the time. I know that, she said, but you keep on fiddling with it and it still doesn't tell the right time, or even anything like it. She brought up the display on her wrist panel which automatically produced a readout of local time. Her wrist panel had quietly got on with the business of measuring the local gravity and orbital momentum and had noticed where the sun was and tracked its movement in the sky, all within the first few minutes of Random's arrival. It had then quickly picked up clues from its environment as to what the local unit conventions were and reset itself appropriately. It did this sort of thing continually, which was particularly valuable if you did a lot of travelling in time as well as space. Random frowned at her father's watch, which didn't do any of this. Arthur was very fond of it. It was a better one than he would ever have afforded himself. He had been given it on his 22nd birthday by a rich and guilt-ridden godfather who had forgotten every single birthday he had had up till then and also his name. It had the day, the date, the phases of the moon. It had to Albert on his 21st birthday and the wrong date engraved on the battered and scratched surface of its back in letters that were still just about visible. The watch had been through a considerable amount of stuff in the last few years, most of which would fall well outside the warranty. He didn't suppose, of course, that the warranty had especially mentioned that the watch was guaranteed to be accurate only within the very particular gravitational and magnetic fields of the Earth, and so long as the day was 24 hours long and the planet didn't explode and so on. These were such basic assumptions that even the lawyers would have missed them. Luckily, his watch was a wind-up one, or at least a self-winder. Nowhere else in the galaxy would he have found batteries of precisely the dimensions and power specifications that were perfectly standard on Earth. So what are all these numbers? asked Random. Arthur took it from her. These numbers round the edge mark the hours. In the little window on the right it says THU, which means Thursday, and the number is 14, which means it's the 14th day of the month of May, which is what it says in this window over here. And this sort of crescent-shaped window at the top tells you about the phases of the moon. In other words, it tells you how much of the moon is lit up at night by the sun, which depends on the relative positions of the sun and the moon and, well, the Earth. The Earth, said Random. Yes. And that's where you came from and where Mum came from. Yes. Random took the watch back from him and looked at it again, clearly baffled by something. Then she held it up to her ear and listened in puzzlement. What's that noise? It's ticking. That's the mechanism that drives the watch. It's called clockwork. It's all kind of interlocking cogs and springs that work to turn the hands round at exactly the right speed to mark the hours and minutes and days and so on. Random carried on peering at it. There's something puzzling you, said Arthur. What is it? 
Yes, said Random at last. Why is it all in hardware? Arthur suggested they went for a walk. He felt there were things they should discuss, and for once Random seemed, if not precisely amenable and willing, then at least not growling. From Random's point of view, this was also all very weird. It wasn't that she wanted to be difficult as such, it was just that she didn't know how or what else to be. Who was this guy? What was this life she was supposed to lead? What was this world she was supposed to lead it in? And what was this universe that kept coming at her through her eyes and ears? What was it for? What did it want? She'd been born in a spaceship that had been going from somewhere to somewhere else, and when it had got to somewhere else, somewhere else had only turned out to be another somewhere that you had to get to somewhere else again from, and so on. It was a normal expectation that she was supposed to be somewhere else. It was normal for her to feel that she was in the wrong place. Then, constant time travel had only compounded this problem, and had led to the feeling that she was not only always in the wrong place, but she was also almost always there at the wrong time. She didn't notice that she felt this because it was the only way she ever felt, just as it never seemed odd to her that nearly everywhere she went, she needed either to wear weights or anti-gravity suits and usually special apparatus for breathing as well. The only places you could ever feel right were worlds you designed for yourself to inhabit, virtual realities in the electric clubs. It had never occurred to her that the real universe was something you could actually fit into. And that included this Lamwella place her mother had dumped her in. And it also included this person who had bestowed on her this precious and magical gift of life in return for a seat upgrade. It was just as well he had turned out to be rather kind and friendly or there would have been trouble. Really. She'd got a specially sharpened stone in her pocket she could cause a lot of trouble with. It can be very dangerous to see things from somebody else's point of view without the proper training. They sat on the spot that Arthur particularly liked, on the side of a hill overlooking the valley. The sun was going down over the village. The only thing that Arthur wasn't quite so fond of was being able to see a little way into the next valley, where a deep, dark, mangled furrow in the forest marked the spot where his ship had crashed. But maybe that was what kept bringing him back here. There were plenty of spots from which you could survey the lush, rolling countryside of Lamwella, but this was the one he was drawn to, with its nagging, dark spot of fear and pain nestling just on the edge of his vision. He had never been there again since he had been pulled out of the wreckage. Wouldn't. Couldn't bear it. In fact, he had gone some of the way back to it the very next day, while he was still numb and spinning with shock. He had a broken leg, a couple of broken ribs, some bad burns and was not really thinking coherently, but had insisted that the villagers take him, which, uneasily, they had. He had not managed to get right to the actual spot where the ground had bubbled and melted, however, and had at last hobbled away from the horror forever. Soon, word had got around that the whole area was haunted, and no one had ventured back there ever since. The land was full of beautiful, verdant and delightful valleys, no point in going to a highly worrying one. Let the past hold on to itself and let the present move forward into the future. Random cradled the watch in her hands, slowly turning it to let the long light of the evening sun shine warmly in the scratches and scuffs of the thick glass. It fascinated her, watching the spidery little second hand ticking its way round. Every time it completed a full circle, 
the longer of the two main hands had moved on exactly to the next of the sixty small divisions round the dial, and when the long hand had made its own full circle, the smaller hand had moved on to the next of the main digits. "'You've been watching it for over an hour,' said Arthur quietly. "'I know,' she said. "'An hour is when the big hand has gone all the way round, yes?' "'That's right.' "'Then I've been watching it for an hour and seventeen minutes.' She smiled with a deep and mysterious pleasure and moved very slightly so that she was resting just a little against his arm. Arthur felt a small sigh escape from him that had been pent up inside his chest for weeks. He wanted to put his arm round his daughter's shoulders but felt it was too early yet and that she would shy away from him. But something was working. Something was easing inside her. The watch meant something to her that nothing in her life had so far managed to do. Arthur was not sure that he had really understood what it was yet, but he was profoundly pleased and relieved that something had reached her. Explain to me again, said Random. There's nothing really to it, said Arthur. Clockwork was something that developed over hundreds of years. Earth years. Yes, it became finer and finer and more and more intricate, it was highly skilled and delicate work. It had to be made very small, and it had to carry on working accurately however much you waved it around or dropped it. But only on one planet. Well, that was where it was made, you see. It was never expected to go anywhere else and deal with different suns and moons and magnetic fields and things. I mean, the thing still goes perfectly well, but it doesn't really mean much this far from Switzerland. From where? Switzerland! That's where these were made. Small, hilly country, tiresomely neat. The people who made them didn't really know there were other worlds. Quite a big thing not to know. Well, yes. So where did they come from? They, that is, we, we just sort of grew there. We evolved on the earth from, I don't know, some kind of sludge or something. Like this watch. Um, I don't think the watch grew out of sludge. You don't understand! Random suddenly leapt to her feet, shouting. You don't understand! You don't understand me! You don't understand anything! I hate you for being so stupid! She started to run hectically down the hill, still clutching the watch and shouting that she hated him. Arthur jumped up, startled and at a loss. He started to run after her through the stringy and clumpy grass. It was hard and painful for him, when he had broken his leg in the crash, it had not been a clean break and it had not healed cleanly. He was stumbling and wincing as he ran. Suddenly she turned and faced him, her face dark with anger. She brandished the watch at him. You don't understand that there's somewhere this belongs. Somewhere it works. Somewhere that it fits. She turned and ran again. She was fit and fleet-footed and Arthur could not remotely keep up with her. It wasn't that he had not expected being a father to be this difficult, it was that he hadn't expected to be a father at all, particularly not suddenly and unexpectedly on an alien planet. Random turned to shout at him again. For some reason he stopped each time she did. Who do you think I am? she demanded angrily. Your upgrade! Who do you think Mum thought I was? Some sort of ticket to the life she didn't have? I don't know what you mean by that, said Arthur, panting and hurting. You don't know what anybody means by anything. What do you mean? Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! 
Tell me, please tell me, what does she mean by saying the life she didn't have? She wished she'd stayed on Earth. She wished she hadn't gone off with that stupid brain-dead fruit gum Zaphod. She thinks she would have had a different life. But, said Arthur, she would have been killed. She would have been killed when the world was destroyed. That's a different life, isn't it? That's... She wouldn't have had to have me. She hates me. Oh, you can't mean that. How could anyone possibly... Uh, I mean, she had me because I was meant to make things fit for her. That was my job. But I fitted even worse than she did. So she just shut me off and carried on with her stupid life. What's stupid about her life? She's fantastically successful, isn't she? She's all over time and space, all over the sub-ether TV networks. Stupid, 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 stupid! Random turned and ran off again. Arthur couldn't keep up with her, and at last he had to sit down for a bit and let the pain in his legs subside. The turmoil in his head, he didn't know what to do with it all. He hobbled into the village an hour later. It was getting dark. The villagers he passed said hello, but there was a sense of nervousness and of not quite knowing what was going on or what to do about it in the air. Old Thrashbarg had been seen pulling on his beard a fair bit and looking at the moon, and that was not a good sign either. Arthur went into his hut. Random was sitting hunched quietly over the table. I'm sorry, she said. I'm so sorry. That's all right, said Arthur as gently as he knew how. It's good to, well, to have a little chat. There's so much we have to learn and understand about each other, and life isn't, well, it isn't all just tea and sandwiches. I'm so sorry, she said again, sobbing. Arthur went up to her and put his arm round her shoulder. She didn't resist or pull away. Then Arthur saw what it was she was so sorry about. In the pool of light thrown by a Lamwellen lantern lay Arthur's watch. Random had forced the back off it with the back edge of the butter-spreading knife, and all of the minute cogs and springs and levers were lying in a tiny, cockeyed mess where she'd been fiddling with them. I just wanted to see how it worked, said Random. How it all fitted together, I'm so sorry. I can't get it back together. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. I'll get it repaired, really. I'll get it repaired. The following day, Thrashbarg came round and said all sorts of Bob stuff. He tried to exert a calming influence by inviting Random to let her mind dwell on the ineffable mystery of the giant earwig, and Random said there was no giant earwig, and Thrashbarg went very cold and silent and said she would be cast into outer darkness. Random said good, she had been born there, and the next day the parcel arrived. This was all getting a bit eventful. In fact, when the parcel arrived, delivered by a kind of robot drone that dropped out of the sky making droning robot noises, it brought with it a sense which gradually began to permeate through the whole village, that it was almost one event too many. It wasn't the robot drone's fault, all it required was Arthur Dent's signature or thumbprint or just a few scrapings of skin cells from the nape of his neck and it would be on its way again. It hung around, waiting, not quite sure what all this resentment was about. Meanwhile, Kerp had caught another fish with a head at both ends, but on closer inspection it turned out that it was in fact two fish cut in half and sewn together rather badly, 
So not only had Kerp failed to rekindle any great interest in two-headed fish, but he had seriously cast doubt on the authenticity of the first one. Only the picker birds seemed to feel that everything was exactly normal. The robot drone got Arthur's signature and made its escape. Arthur bore the parcel back to his hut and sat and looked at it. Let's open it, said Random, who was feeling much more cheerful this morning now that everything around her had got thoroughly weird, but Arthur said no. Why not? It's not addressed to me. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's addressed to... Well, it's addressed to Ford Prefect in care of me. Ford Prefect? Is he the one who... Yes, said Arthur tartly. I've heard about him. I expect you have. Well, let's open it anyway. What else are we going to do? I don't know, said Arthur, who really wasn't sure. He had taken his damaged knives over to the forge bright and early that morning, and Strinder had had a look at them and said that he would see what he could do. They had tried the usual business of waving the knives through the air, feeling for the point of balance and the point of flex and so on, but the joy was gone from it, and Arthur had a sad feeling that his sandwich-making days were probably numbered. He hung his head. The next appearance of the perfectly normal beast was imminent, but Arthur felt that the usual festivities of hunting and feasting were going to be rather muted and uncertain. Something had happened here on Lamwella, and Arthur had a horrible feeling that it was him. "'What do you think it is?' urged Random, turning the parcel over in her hands. "'I don't know,' said Arthur. "'Something bad and worrying, though.' "'How do you know?' Random protested. "'Because anything to do with Ford Prefect is bound to be worse and more worrying than something that isn't,' said Arthur. "'Believe me.' You're upset about something, aren't you? said Random. Arthur sighed. I'm just feeling a little jumpy and unsettled, I think, said Arthur. I'm sorry, said Random, and put the package down again. She could see that it really would upset him if she opened it. She would just have to do it when he wasn't looking. Chapter 16 Arthur wasn't quite certain which he had noticed as being missing first. When he noticed that the one wasn't there, his mind instantly leapt to the other, and he knew immediately that they were both gone and that something insanely bad and difficult to deal with would happen as a result. Random was not there, and neither was the parcel. He had left it up on a shelf all day in plain view. It was an exercise in trust. He knew that one of the things he was supposed to do as a parent was to show trust in his child, to build a sense of trust and confidence into the bedrock of relationship between them. He had had a nasty feeling that that might be an idiotic thing to do, but he did it anyway, and sure enough, it had turned out to be an idiotic thing to do. You live and learn. At any rate, you live. You also panic. Arthur ran out of the hut. It was the middle of the evening. The light was getting dim and a storm was brewing. He could not see her anywhere, nor any sign of her. He asked. No one had seen her. He asked again. No one else had seen her. They were going home for the night. A little wind was whipping round the edge of the village, picking things up and tossing them around in a dangerously casual manner. He found old Thrashbarg and asked him. Thrashbarg looked at him stonily and then pointed in the one direction that Arthur had dreaded, and had therefore instinctively known was the way she would have gone. So now he knew the worst. She had gone where she thought he would not follow her. 
He looked up at the sky, which was sullen, streaked and livid, and reflected that it was the sort of sky that the four horsemen of the apocalypse wouldn't feel like a bunch of complete idiots riding out of. With a heavy sense of the utmost foreboding, he set off on the track that led to the forest in the next valley. The first heavy blobs of rain began to hit the ground as Arthur tried to drag himself to some sort of run. Random reached the crest of the hill and looked down into the next valley. It had been a longer and harder climb than she had anticipated. She was a little worried that doing the trip at night was not that great an idea, but her father had been mooching around near the hut all day trying to pretend to either her or himself that he wasn't guarding the parcel. At last, he'd had to go over to the forge to talk with Strinder about the knives, and Random had seized her opportunity and done a runner with the parcel. It was perfectly clear that she couldn't just open the thing there, in the hut, or even in the village. He might have come across her at any moment, which meant that she had to go where she wouldn't be followed. She could stop where she was now. She had gone this way in the hope that he wouldn't follow her, and even if he did, he would never find her up in the wooded part of the hill with night drawing in and the rain starting. All the way up, the parcel had been jiggling under her arm. It was a satisfyingly hunky sort of thing, a box with a square top about the length of her forearm on each side, and about the length of her hand deep, wrapped up in brown plasper with an ingenious new form of self-knotting string. It didn't rattle as she shook it, but she sensed that its weight was concentrated excitingly at the centre. Having come so far, though, there was a certain satisfaction in not stopping here, but carrying on down into what seemed to be almost a forbidden area, where her father's ship had come down. She wasn't exactly certain what the word haunted meant, but it might be fun to find out. She would keep going and save the parcel up for when she got there. It was getting darker, though. She hadn't used her tiny electric torch yet, because she didn't want to be visible from a distance. She would have to use it now, but it probably didn't matter, since she would be on the other side of the hill which divided the valleys from each other. She turned her torch on. Almost at the same moment, a fork of lightning ripped across the valley into which she was heading and startled her considerably. As the darkness shuddered back around her and a clap of thunder rolled out across the land, she felt suddenly rather small and lost, with just a feeble pencil of light bobbing in her hand. Perhaps she should stop after all and open the parcel here. Or maybe she should go back and come out again tomorrow. It was only a momentary hesitation, though. She knew there was no going back tonight, and sensed that there was no going back ever. She headed on down the side of the hill. The rain was beginning to pick up now. Where a short while ago it had been a few heavy blobs, it was settling in for a good pour now, hissing in the trees, and the ground was getting slippery under her feet. At least, she thought it was the rain hissing in the trees. Shadows were leaping and leering at her as her light bobbed through the trees, onwards and downwards. She hurried on for another ten or fifteen minutes, soaked to the skin now and shivering, and gradually became aware that there seemed to be some other light somewhere ahead of her. It was very faint and she wasn't certain if she was imagining it or not. She turned off her torch to see. There did seem to be some sort of dim glow ahead, she couldn't tell what it was. She turned her torch back on and continued down the hill towards whatever it was. There was something wrong with the woods, though. She couldn't immediately say what it was, but they didn't seem like sprightly, healthy woods looking forward to a good spring. The trees were lolling at sickly angles and had a sort of pallid, blighted look about them. 
random, more than once had the worrying sensation that they were trying to reach towards her as she passed them, but it was just a trick of the way that her light caused their shadows to flicker and lurch. Suddenly, something fell out of a tree in front of her. She leapt backwards with alarm, dropping both the torch and the box as she did so. She went down into a crouch, pulling the specially sharpened rock out of her pocket. The thing that had fallen out of the tree was moving. The torch was lying on the ground and pointing towards it, and a vast, grotesque shadow was slowly lurching through the light towards her. She could hear faint rustling and screeching noises over the steady hiss of the rain. She scrabbled on the ground for the torch, found it, and shone it directly at the creature. At the same moment, another dropped from a tree just a few feet away. She swung the torch wildly from one to another. She held her rock up, ready to throw. They were quite small, in fact. It was the angle of the light that had made them loom so large. Not only small, but small, furry and cuddly. And there was another dropping from the trees. It fell through the beam of light, so she saw it quite clearly. It fell neatly and precisely, turned and then, like the other two, started slowly and purposefully to advance on random. She stayed rooted to the spot. She still had her rock poised and ready to throw, but was increasingly conscious of the fact that the things she had it poised and ready to throw at were squirrels, or at least squirrel-like things. Soft, warm, cuddly squirrel-like things advancing on her in a way she wasn't at all certain she liked. She shone her torch directly on the first of them. It was making aggressive, hectoring, screeching noises, and carrying in one of its little fists a small, tattered piece of wet, pink rag. Random hefted her rock menacingly in her hand, but it made no impression at all on the squirrel advancing on her with its wet piece of rag. She backed away. She didn't know at all how to deal with this. If there had been vicious, snarling, slavering beasts with glistening fangs, she would have pitched into them with a will, but squirrels behaving like this she couldn't quite handle. She backed away again. The second squirrel was starting to make a flanking manoeuvre round to her right, carrying a cup, some kind of acorn thing. The third was right behind it and making its own advance. What was it carrying? Some little scrap of soggy paper, Random thought. She stepped back again, caught her ankle against the root of a tree and fell over backwards. Instantly, the first squirrel darted forward and was on top of her, advancing along her stomach with cold purpose in its eyes and a piece of wet rag in its fist. Random tried to jump up, but only managed to jump about an inch. The startled movement of the squirrel on her stomach startled her in return. The squirrel froze, gripping her skin through her soaking shirt with its tiny claws. Then slowly, inch by inch, it made its way up her, stopped, and proffered her the rag. She felt almost hypnotised by the strangeness of the thing and its tiny glinting eyes. It proffered her the rag again. It pushed at her repeatedly, screeching insistently, till at last, nervously, hesitantly, she took the thing from it. It continued to watch her intently, its eyes darting all over her face. She had no idea what to do. Rain and mud were streaming down her face and she had a squirrel sitting on her. She wiped some mud out of her eyes with the rag. 
the squirrel shrieked triumphantly, grabbed the rag back, leapt off her, ran scampering into the dark enclosing night, darted up into a tree, dived into a hole in the trunk, settled back and lit a cigarette. Meanwhile, Random was trying to fend off the squirrel with the acorn cup full of rain and the one with the paper. She shuffled backwards on her bottom. No, she shouted, go away! They darted back in fright and then darted right forward again with their gifts. She brandished her rock at them. Go! she yelled. The squirrels scampered round in consternation. Then one darted straight at her, dropped the acorn cup in her lap, turned and ran off into the night. The other stood, quivering for a moment, then put its scrap of paper neatly down in front of her and disappeared as well. She was alone again, but trembling with confusion. She got unsteadily to her feet, picked up her rock and her parcel, then paused and picked up the scrap of paper as well. It was so soggy and dilapidated it was hard to make out what it was. It seemed just to be a fragment of an in-flight magazine. Just as Random was trying to understand exactly what it was that this all meant, a man walked out into the clearing in which he was standing, raised a vicious-looking gun and shot her. Arthur was thrashing about hopelessly two or three miles behind her on the upward side of the hill. Within minutes of setting out he had gone back again and equipped himself with a lamp, not an electric one. The only electric light in the place was the one that Random had brought with her. This was a kind of dim hurricane lamp, a perforated metal canister from Strinder's Forge, which contained a reservoir of inflammable fish oil, a wick of knotted dried grass, and was wrapped in a translucent film made from dried membranes from the gut of a perfectly normal beast. It had now gone out. Arthur jiggled around with it in a thoroughly pointless kind of a way for a few seconds, there was clearly no way he was going to get the thing suddenly to burst into flame again in the middle of a rainstorm, but it's impossible not to make a token effort. Reluctantly, he threw the thing aside. What to do? This was hopeless. He was absolutely sodden, his clothes heavy and billowing with the rain, and now he was lost in the dark as well. For a brief second he was lost in the blinding light, and then he was lost in the dark again. The sheet of lightning had at least shown him that he was very close to the brow of the hill. Once he had breasted that, he would... Well, he wasn't certain what he would do. He'd have to work that out when he got there. He limped forward and upwards. A few minutes later, he knew that he was standing panting at the top. There was some kind of dim glow in the distance below him. He had no idea what it was, and indeed he hardly liked to think. It was the only thing he had to make towards, though, so he started to make his way, stumbling, lost and frightened, towards it. The flash of lethal light passed straight through Random, and, about two seconds later, so did the man who had shot it. Other than that, he paid her no attention whatsoever. He had shot someone standing behind her, and when she turned to look, he was kneeling over the body and going through its pockets. The tableau froze and vanished. It was replaced a second later by a giant pair of teeth, framed by immense and perfectly glossed red lips. A huge blue brush appeared out of nowhere and started foamily to scrub at the teeth, which continued to hang there gleaming in the shimmering curtain of rain. Random blinked at it twice before she got it. It was a commercial. 
The guy who had shot her was part of a holographic in-flight movie. She must now be very close to where the ship had crashed. Obviously, some of its systems were more indestructible than others. The next half-mile of the journey was particularly troublesome. Not only did she have the cold and the rain and the night to contend with, but also the fractured and thrashing remains of the ship's on-board entertainment system. Spaceships and jet cars and helipods crashed and exploded continuously around her, illuminating the night. Villainous people in strange hats smuggled dangerous drugs through her, and the combined orchestra and chorus of the Halipolis State Opera performed the closing march of the Angequantine Star Guard from Act Four of Rizgar's Blamwellamum of Woont in a little glade somewhere off to her left. And then she was standing on the lip of a very nasty-looking and bubbly-edged crater. There was still a faint warm glow coming from what would otherwise have looked like an enormous piece of caramelised chewing gum in the centre of the pit. The melted remains of a great spaceship. She stood looking at it for a longish while, and then at last started to walk along and around the edge of the crater. She was no longer certain what she was looking for, but kept moving anyway keeping the horror of the pit to her left. The rain was beginning to ease off a little, but it was still extremely wet, and since she didn't know what it was that was in the box, whether it was perhaps something delicate or damageable, she thought she ought to find somewhere reasonably dry to open it. She hoped she hadn't already damaged it by dropping it. She played her torch around the surrounding trees, which were thin on the ground here, and mostly charred and broken. In the middle distance, she thought she could see a jumbled outcrop of rock which might provide some shelter, and she started to pick her way towards it. All around, she found the detritus that had been ejected from the ship as it broke up, before the final fireball. After she had moved two or three hundred yards from the edge of the crater, she came across the tattered fragments of some fluffy pink material, sodden, muddied, and drooping amongst the broken trees. She guessed, correctly, that this must be the remains of the escape cocoon that had saved her father's life. She went and looked at it more closely, and then noticed something close to it on the ground, half covered in mud. She picked it up and wiped the mud off it. It was some kind of electronic device the size of a small book. Feebly glowing on its cover, in response to her touch, were some large, friendly letters. They said, don't panic. She knew what this was. It was her father's copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. She felt instantly reassured by it, turned her head up to the thundery sky and let some rain wash over her face and into her mouth. She shook her head and hurried on towards the rocks. Clambering up and over them, she almost immediately found the perfect thing, the mouth of a cave. She played her torch into its interior. It seemed to be dry and safe. Picking her way carefully, she walked in. It was quite spacious, but didn't go that deep. Exhausted and relieved, she sat on a convenient rock, put the box down in front of her, and started immediately to open it. 